Ladies and gents, it is Tyson Popplestone here. Welcome back to the Pop Culture Podcast. Hope you're doing really well. Hey, just in case you're uh, you're not used to bad language, you don't like it, or you got kids in the car, you're trying to pretend that these words don't exist. Maybe just uh, be cautious where you listen to this one because there's there's a few f bombs flying around. There's a few other words flying around, and there sort of has to be as well because of the title of her book. So let me just tell you this one. I've done a little bit of digging through the archives of uh, the media recording in the world of Tyson Popplestone, and I found a couple of bangers that they've just been sitting on my computer uh, without anyone hearing them. It seems like a waste of time. So this is one that I recorded. I was actually sitting in a little. Uh, I was sitting in like a closet in London under my house back in, I think it was 2017, doing this interview with Sarah Knight. Now, if you don't know Sarah Knight, she was formerly an editor. She's now an author. You would have seen her books all over bookshops, The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck, um, Get Your Shit Together. She's got a whole range of naughty word books. So if you want to check them out, make sure you just type in Sarah Knight to Google. You'll get a glimpse of all the work that she's done. She's a really refreshing, straight up, she's a real straight shooter which is what I like about it. So it was a really good uh, interview. This one got lots of views back on YouTube years ago, so I can see that people really like it. I'm hoping you do too. Now, if you've got any particular guest requests, uh, just shoot me a message. Let me know who you'd like to hear from. But apart from that, let me get out of your way and enjoy this oldie but goodie with myself and author Sarah Knight. So what are you going to tell us, tough guys? My usual, zero, nothing. So whereabouts are you in the in the world right now? You're in Dominican? Yes, I'm on the Samana Peninsula, which is the northeastern coast of the island. Yeah, okay, nice. nice. So how long has that been home for? Because I, I couldn't believe it. Like, when I spoke to you a little while ago and you mentioned that you're living in the Dominican Republic, I was, I was so impressed, slash in the middle of a London winter and, and really jealous. <laughs> yeah, I have to say it's really nice to have escaped winter. Um, we've been living here full-time since November, so that's, what, seven months? Uh, and we were here for three months last year, um, getting everything set up and opening up the house and, you know, working on all of the details that you have to work on to, to move to a foreign country. Um, and then we had to go back to New York City to finalize some stuff there. So it's been off and on for, for a year, but we're here permanently now. So Beautiful. So up until that point, New York City was home for you guys? Yes. Man. Okay. Okay. How's the, how's the adjustment been? Good. I mean, it's, um, you know, there are new challenges uh, for living in a, in a basically what's a third world country <laughs> and, um, you know, and learning the language and, and having things that we never had before. We have a car now. Well, there's a lot of problems with cars in this climate. And we have a house now, which is very different than taking care of an apartment in New York. Um, but overall, we're extremely happy. So. Man, so how did that transition happen? So is your husband originally from there or what, what took you guys uh, over to the Dominican Republic? Oh, no. Um, we just decided that we really wanted to live somewhere tropical. We really hate winter. And <laughs> we had lived in New York City. I had lived there for 16 years and he had been there for 20 years because he went to college at NYU. Um, and we just sort of felt like we were done with New York. Um, and we started researching places that we might move to. And we had a lot of criteria for, you know, stability of government and, you know, uh, cost of living and access to decent healthcare and distance from the East Coast um, because we have, you know, family, obviously, and friends that we would still like to be able to visit easily. Yeah. Um, so we landed on the Dominican Republic and then we found this town and then we found people that were building 
um, homes that looked like the kind of homes we would like to live in. And then we kind of, you know, stepped off the cliff and, <laughs> and got that process rolling. And it took about a year and a half um, to get the house built and to quit my job and to pack up everything in New York and sell that apartment and move down here. <laughs> That's amazing. So what were your family and friends back in New York saying to you when you, uh, when you decided to take the leap? Well, they were very surprised. And the reason that they were very surprised is because we didn't tell them anything until we had the house built. <laughs> um, because we didn't really want to have conversations about, you know, why are you doing this? This doesn't sound like a good idea. Have you thought it through? Why are you turning your back on your successful, happy lives in New York? Um, we just didn't want to have those conversations. And we knew that there were people who would question our decisions. So we kept it to ourselves until the house was built. And then we sent around a big email and said, guess what? We're moving to the Dominican Republic. <laughs> it's a few shocked faces, I imagine. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. So from the time that you decided to leave New York, from the time that, uh, to the time that you got to uh, Dominican Republic for the first time, was the first time that you got there to move, did you say? Or you went on a couple of holidays and decided that was the place for you? Uh, we went on one holiday and decided it was the place for us. So we had been looking at different areas of the world and we found this town called Las Terrenas and we decided to book a vacation there. So we did that in February of 2014. And when we got here, we loved it and we said, we don't need to visit any of the other places on our list. This is it. So it's been about three years total from the first time that we visited this town until today. Oh my gosh! What a, I bet you're rocking the most amazing tan as well with that Dominican summer, or just even winter. I have winter. an excellent tan. <laughs> I'm so jealous. <laughs> I'm so jealous. I tell you what, uh, I, I haven't seen the sun until about half an hour ago when it came out for the first time here in London. For a minute, I didn't actually know what was happening. I got really nervous. Right. <laughs> we had to go hide in a closet. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly where this podcast is coming from. So, hey, one of the um one of the really interesting parts of your story that um you, you just mentioned a moment ago was when you decided to make the big leap. Your family and friends were really shocked that you were deciding to leave your your successful lives to you know m make a massive change. Uh, just for the listeners who might not have heard of you, who've been introduced to your name for the first time, what did that successful life look like? What were you guys, uh, or were you in particular, what were you doing in New York? Uh, I was a book editor. I was a senior editor at Simon & Schuster, which is one of the top five publishing houses in New York. And I'd been uh, pursuing that career for 15 years, and I was doing really well. I had a lot of best-selling books and authors, um, and you know, to the from the outside looking in, you would say, "Wow, you know, she's doing exactly what she always said she wanted to do, and she's succeeding at it and moving up the ladder." And I was, but I was also just really, really, really unhappy in the last couple of years of my job, and it was, it took a long time for me to reckon with the fact that it might be the the career itself like even though it was a very successful career that it that it was actually contributing to my unhappiness and depression and anxiety and so once i kind of figured that out and accepted it and decided to make a change uh life got a lot better i have mm. to say yeah so so you said you you were going through a lot of anxiety and and depression mm -hmm. was that all a part of 
the work that you're in, the lifestyle that you were in, and was that something that had sort of been building for a long time? Because I know for myself, I've been in a in a few jobs in the past that I think from the outside probably look like are going really well, and um, you know it's nice to have a good little pay packet and things coming in. But I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned in the last few years is, yeah, sure, it's okay to have all the money and that successful life structure, uh, at least from the outside, but on the inside feeling absolutely shit and just wishing you could make a massive change. Uh, was that one yeah. of the biggest influences for you to make the change? Yeah, for sure. And it was really my mental and physical health that prompted the change. Um, I would say that, you know, I've been somebody who's suffered from anxiety probably since I was really young. If I look back on it now and realize some of the things that happened to me when I was a kid and a teenager and in college, I now realize that those were related to anxiety and panic disorder. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I didn't really have a handle on that until I would say my, my early to mid thirties and I'm, I'm almost 39 now. So it's really been sort of the last five years of my life that I kind of figured out this is what's happening. This is why it's happening. And here's what I have to do to change it. And, you know, I wouldn't blame my, my job itself. Um, it was a great job. I wouldn't blame my colleagues. They're lovely people. Well, some of them. (laughs) Um, but I think that I just really, was not the kind of person who wanted to have to put up with a very bureaucratic environment. I was very good at office diplomacy. I was very good at checking off all the boxes and going to all the meetings and doing everything that was asked of me. But that doesn't mean that it was good for me to to have that kind of working life. So now I work for myself and it's pretty great. Yeah. Because I like my boss. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. I think uh, it's really interesting that you said it wasn't until you sort of early to mid thirties that you felt as though you started to get a bit of a grasp on the the anxiety and depression. And a lot of people I speak to in my field, um, you know, obviously, I guess people all around the world are, are dealing with those things. And uh, you, you mentioned that the lifestyle change was obviously a massive part in in making you feel better. But uh, what were some of the other things? What were the other uh, some of the other steps that you took in order to sort of take you from the anxiety and uh, depression that you were feeling to, you know, feeling a little bit better about where you were at? Well, you know, I finally saw an actual professional doctor for all of my symptoms (laughs) instead of, you know, trying to self-medicate and deny their existence. And, you know, I learned a lot of tips and tricks, um, you know, including kind of I did some biofeedback and I learned how to control my breathing and I learned about down regulation, you know, and I also got prescriptions for medication to treat all of these things. And, um, and all of that kind of helped me reach a baseline of, oh, isn't it wonderful to wake up and not feel like my chest is thumping and my, you know, my lungs are constricting and my head is pounding every day. That's nice, but that's as a result of the drugs. So let's now take the, you know, the next step and say, what other, what other factors in my environment could I change that would maybe make it not necessary for me to have to medicate? Mm. Um, so, you know, but I'm a, I'm a fan of doing whatever you have to do to, to get yourself through the day. Uh, but I think that, you know, for me, I was, it just took me a while to, it took me a while to realize that it was okay to quit a job. Mm. Um, and I wrote, I wrote a piece about that on medium right when I was quitting my job a couple of years ago. And it, 
went massively viral. And, um, you know, I, in it, I described that, you know, part of the reason why I was so nervous about making this change was because I didn't want to be labeled a quitter. And I think that was my own shit, you know, that I, oh, sorry, am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Of course, please. (laughs) (laughs) That was, that was my own stuff going on in my head that was preventing me from making a decision that in the end, other people supported. They were like, wow, this is an amazing big change. Like, good for you. How courageous. How brave. And meanwhile, I was thinking, oh, I thought everybody was going to think, you know, badly of me. Um, So, you know, I really – and that's really what I get at in my first book, um, which – that also contains um, a bad swear word. <laughs> you know, I was going to say, you <laughs> know what, I wouldn't have even bothered asking you for the chat if you weren't allowed to swear on this show. So okay, please, okay. just for, uh, for full effects, uh, don't hold back. <laughs> okay, well, that book is called The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck. And in it, I talk about how you really have to stop giving a fuck about what other people think. Mm-hmm. And that you know, removing yourself from the guilt and shame, the sort of preemptive guilt and shame um, and obligations you feel to other people is really the key to being able to do what you want and feel good about it. Uh, And so I really, I sort of, I, I practiced it in an accidental way when I quit my job. And once I realized what a major change um, I had made in my mental life, not just my, you know, my physical life, I figured out a way for other people to do it on purpose. And I wrote a book about it. So that's amazing. I tell you what. So I, uh, I first saw that book over here in London. I've been going through a lot of Waterstones bookshops, uh, mm-hmm. bookstores around here in London. And it was about, it was about six months ago. I was in uh, a bath. I was on a road trip with my wife and we walked into one of the bookshops and, uh, they had about, I don't, they must have had 30 copies of your book yeah. up on the shelf. And immediately, obviously, with a, with an amazing title like that, I was, I was immediately curious. <laughs> so I went and picked it up and flicked through and, uh, and it got my attention. So I got myself a copy and, uh, and I absolutely love the philosophy and it's making a, it's making a massive impact. Uh, all around the world, I was back home in uh, in Australia a while ago and had some friends reading your book over there. So I thought I have to reach out because I think, I, I, I don't know exactly how to say uh, what I'm about to try and say, but I think one of the most refreshing things about it, at just off a first impressions level, it's like, okay, I know the self-help industry can be a little bit uh, like bullshit, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. There's a, a lot of airy-fairy uh, sort of instruction, a lot of airy-fairy sort of language. So I felt like as soon as I saw the title of your book, I, I felt as though I was going to be introduced to a really honest sort of review of, of what it's like, you know, dealing with the shit in our life. <laughs> And, uh, well, thank you. Yeah, and, and reading through it, obviously, um, uh, quickly became aware of the fact that that was true. But uh, hearing hearing your lead up to uh, to writing that book or, or hearing about what your life was like for so many years before you actually wrote it, I, w- I would love to hear about the sort of defining moment when you thought or, or the uh, a breakthrough moment, I guess, where you thought, you know what, there's actually – uh, there's a message here for a lot of other people to hear. I guess from the uh, the fragility of your story and the the awkwardness that you felt about leaving your job and the stress and everything that accompanied that. At what point did you realize? Hang on a second. It's not just me struggling with this. And there's a message that I've got to share with people all around the world through this. Well, it happened really quickly after I left my job. So I had been you know, I'd been struggling with that decision and then I, I made the decision to quit. And this is something that um, a lot of people, I think, 
gloss over when I get, you know, I get a few negative comments in with the flow of positive comments and they say, oh, you could just walk away from your job. Well, I didn't just walk away from it. I spent an entire year saving up money, literally every single day, um, putting money into a savings account so that when I left, I would have a cushion so that I could start my freelance business without having to freak out about it. Um, so, you know, that, that year was spent sort of mentally preparing, um, to leave my job and to make this big life change as well as financially preparing for it. And then the day that I walked out of my job, um, I had the book idea probably about four weeks later, maybe six weeks later. And it was really the result of the enormous amount of sort of liberation that I felt, mm. um, you know, having left that job behind and suddenly just feeling less stressed out and less overwhelmed and less anxious. And, you know, to anybody who says, well, of course you felt that way. You just quit your job. But I was also starting a business. I was also starting my own freelance business with all of the, you know, attendant problems and challenges that that entails. And yet I still felt great and I still felt like I had more energy. Um, and, you know, the tenets that I that I keep pounding into people's heads in my book are time, energy, and money. You know, those are your fucks. Mm -hmm. And you give them to things that, um, you know, that are really important to you. And once I stopped giving them to office diplomacy and conference calls and wearing high heels all day and taking the subway twice a day for, you know, a combined two hours of commuting uh, to get to a job that was making me depressed, yeah. um, I suddenly had all this time, energy, and money. Well, I had time and energy. I was working on making the money. Um, but I had saved a bunch of money. So, you know, uh, to do what I wanted to do. And so really writing the book happened, having the idea and the writing, I only, I, I wrote it in a month. Um, wow. and that is not something I would recommend, but I did. <laughs> and, uh, and all of that was because of a burst of creative energy and just general energy that I suddenly came into possession of, um, when I made this big life change. So it was sort of like I started I, I practiced it and then I started preaching it because, yes. uh, you know, it happened to me and I thought, oh, I was so worried about, um, you know, about shaking up my perfectly fine life in pursuit of something better. And it turned out better than I could have imagined. So it made me feel like there are probably a lot of other people out there who would benefit from that message and from somebody saying, I was just like you and I did it so you can do it too. Yeah. Just on that note, has it surprised you how many people have come out of the woodwork to say, yeah, I actually was exactly like you and thanks for giving me the freedom or the, the confidence to step out? It has surprised me mostly because, you know, I was a book editor for 15 years and so I probably edited, you know, 100, 125 books in that time and worked with all of those authors. And I know that books sometimes just kind of go out into the world and you don't really hear much about them. They get a couple of reviews and that's it. And so I was really prepared for that outcome just because I'm so used to it. Um, obviously, then sometimes you have the great story of the, the big surprise bestseller and that's what happened to me. And I'm incredibly grateful, but I definitely was surprised at the the volume, the outpouring. I mean, you talked about seeing the book everywhere in London and people reading it in Australia. You know, it's the first book, The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck, is being published in, I think, 18 countries at this point. Oh, my gosh. Um, many of which have, have published it already. So it's been published. It was a bestseller in Italy. It was a bestseller in Germany. Um, it's been published in the Netherlands and France and Brazil 
Um, it was a bestseller in Poland, you know, so it's just been kind of amazing to me to get all of these responses from people all over social media, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, plus the the actual fan emails that I get from people saying, you know, how much it's changed their lives. And, I, you know, it's a it's a parody of a bestselling um, book. And, you know, it's meant to be really funny. But apparently, uh, <laughs> you know, in in humor, there is truth. Yeah. And uh, and I think people are really reacting um, really well to it. So I'm very happy about that. That's amazing. So yeah, you mentioned that a lot of books do go out into the world. You've experienced this firsthand as an editor to see, you know, the work that goes in, the book that goes out. And yeah, it gets a couple of reviews, but it sort of stagnates and you don't hear much about it after that. What do you think it is about the message that, that you've put out there that's absolutely just hit such a nerve with, as we've just found out, people all around the world? Well, I think, you know, as you said, um, it's a great title, you know, so you hear about it and you kind of, if you're the kind of person who's interested in that, then you're like, oh, I'm going to take another look at this. So I certainly give, give props to the title gods on that one. <laughs> um, but what I hear from people is just that the message is very liberating and that it's delivered in, as you also said, an unusual way for a self-help book. Mm. Um, and I think that that's just, you know, it's just my personality. I'm not, I'm actually kind of skeptical of the self-help industry as a whole. Um, my husband is very devoted to it there. He reads a lot of self-help books. Um, and, and he practices, you know, their techniques and stuff and that works for him. And I've always found it to be kind of like, that's common sense. And you're selling it to me for $25. In hardcover. <laughs> um, but you know, I also think that my books, uh, and especially my second book, which is called Get Your Shit Together, um, are common sense. But I think they're delivered in a way that people, ha you know, who don't think they like self-help mm. um, really can get on board with. So um, there was a magazine in the UK, The Observer, that uh, that anointed me an anti-guru. And I, <laughs> I like that very much because I do feel like an anti-guru. Um, most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> it must be funny, though, because I can imagine uh, after writing a, a best-selling book like that and, and uh, having millions of people all around the world read and, and just love what you write about, they, they probably do look at you as though you are a little bit of a, a guru, or even though we mm -hmm. might not like that term. So I guess there's a certain element of, of pressure, or I feel it anyway, when I'm preaching a message and then all of a sudden life confronts me with a really challenging situation and I, I preach the answers, but all of a sudden it becomes difficult to actually uh, back it up with the advice that I'm giving out. How do you go with the difficult situations that you now face in life? And do you find just applying the principles that you speak about, it, it helps every time? Or do you have anything else to sort of keep you in check for those moments that used to want to bring you down? Well, I, it's a really good question. And I, I have to say, I, I honestly, uh, you know, every once in a while, probably at least once a week, uh, really do have to remind myself to listen to myself. Um, you know, I, I use exercises that I put forward in my books when I'm having some anxiety about something. And then I go, wait a minute, wait a minute, just do what you tell other people to do. Mm. Visualize, you know, visualize the moment, how you're going to feel in it. Like, RSVP accordingly to that, you know, event that you don't want to go to. Um, and I actually did it just today. As you know, I think, you know, I've been traveling for the last 10 days. Yeah. And so I just got back home and, you know, I have a really long to do list. And 
I decided, wait a minute, rather than feel overwhelmed by this, why don't I take my own advice, which I give and get your shit together, and turn my to-do list into a must-do list. And all that means is taking everything I have to do, looking at it in terms of urgency, and writing down what I have to do literally today, what mm-hmm. must get done today, and move it onto a new list. And suddenly, instead of 18 things on my list, I had two things on my list. Yeah. There were two things that I have to do today. Now, that doesn't mean that once I do those two things, I might not knock out a couple of other a couple of other things, but it really reduces the level of you know anxiety and overwhelming um, feeling to look at you know what you must do. And so I, I actually did that today. <laughs> so you know it's a, it's a relevant question because I do find myself um, you know reacting to the things that life throws at me. Uh, in ways that used to cause me a lot of panic. And now I kind of have the tools at my disposal, but I, I made my own tools. I'm like a caveman or something. <laughs> I, I, I fashioned my own tools to combat um, these problems. And I do often think like, just do what you're telling other people to do and mm. you'll be fine. So uh, one of the things that really impresses me about your story, one of the things, I, and it's funny, and this could sound like a ridiculous question, but I'm just going to pride myself and ask it because uh, whenever <laughs> I see your book in every bookshop, I thought, man, that must be like a dream come true to see something that you've not only experienced and not only written, but just have such an impact all around the world. How did you go, like just on an ego level, do you look at yourself in the mirror in the morning and just go, I'm a bloody champion. Like that is a great effort to be able to write such a good book. Because I tell you what, there could be a reason I haven't written a bestseller like you. And that could be the fact that my ego would explode. So how how have you gone um, uh, just on a personal level with, you know, the fact that this book is amazing, people tell you about it all the time. Like, how do you, how do you keep your ego in check? Or if you're like me, how don't you? <laughs> I am pretty darn pleased with myself. Yeah, I, I have to admit. Yeah. Um, and you know, I've been I've been in a lot of airports recently, and I've seen my book in the airport, and that's really cool. People send me pictures of other people taking it off the shelf and taking it to the register. Um, and you know, I also I think that um, one of the things that that readers seem to react very positively to not only in my two books, but also in a lot of the magazine articles that I've written um, and the medium essays and my tiny letter that I send out is this sort of very candid transparency. So like they don't expect somebody to be like, yeah, I think pretty highly of myself, you know? <laughs> um, and, and so when I say, yeah, no, I'm pretty, I'm pretty proud of myself. I, I'm great. You know, they're like, oh, well, hey, you know what? I like that. Instead of, I think a lot of people don't say that because they think, oh, people are going to think I'm a jerk. They're going to think I'm full of myself. They're going to think I'm selfish. They're whatever. But when you say it, when you're honest and polite, which is what I, you know, preach in my book, mm-hmm. um, people really are like, oh, well, isn't that refreshing? So, you know, I think that it's all the whole thing. The the fact that I was able to make the big life change, I stepped off the cliff and I made it and I survived and I thrived. Um, then wrote the books, you know, then lived the books, then mm-hmm. kind of am able to say, yes, my life is great. Like, why don't you do the same thing? And when I say do the same thing, I want to be very clear. Um, I'm not suggesting that everybody run out and quit their job or run off to a tropical island. It's not what's right for everybody. It happens to be what's right for me. But what I tried to really carefully do in both of my books was simplify the methods to be applicable to anyone and what they want to do with their life and mm. what makes them happy, which might not be the same thing that makes me happy. So, um, you know, I, I do. I feel I feel pretty good about 
where I am today, Tyson. Uh, it's so good. It's so good. Honestly, I find that so refreshing because I'm not sure what it's like. Actually, I can I can sort of guess what it's like in New York, but I'm not sure if I'm I'm getting the wrong impression here. But in Australia, if you admit that you're too proud of yourself for anything that you do, uh, people will really try and drag you down. But I find it so refreshing just to hear someone say, "You know what? I've done something good. Um, I am going to be proud of it." Because I think the amount of work that goes into this stuff, like it'd be pretty depressing not to be able to say, "Yeah, I'm actually uh, quite pleased," or at least admit it. It's so easy to. Play Play the humble card. So I, uh, I appreciate the fact that you're just telling us the, <laughs> <laughs> the fact that it's a, it's a good moment. Telling for it you. straight. Oh, I love it. Hey, so you've mentioned uh, get your shit together a couple of times, and I wanted to jump mm-hmm. into that one. Uh, so that was the that was the second book. How long mm-hmm. after um, the life changing magic did uh, the did the second book come out, and and what was the inspiration for that one? So uh, it came out exactly a year later. Um, Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck came out at the very end of December uh, or early January um, 2015, 2016. And I had the idea for Get Your Shit Together in, I want to say, March of 2016, um, maybe April. And I worked on a proposal and I delivered my proposal to my publisher in May of 2016. So uh, the first book had been on sale for less than six months. Um, It was doing well, but it actually did astronomically better in the following six months, um, it really picked up steam. So we knew that it was doing well and people were liking the message and it might be good to do a sequel. Um, but it actually turns out that that was a, a really smart decision <laughs> uh, on, on all of our parts. So um, I, I ended up having two months to write Get Your Shit Together instead of just one month. Oh, so double the time. Oh, what a luxury. That was, you know, <laughs> that was better. Um, but they really, you know, my publisher and I really wanted to get it out, um, you know, with some momentum of the first book still being alive and getting it out into the January, you know, New Year, New You displays and all of that for the, the self-help kind of bump that that exists in publishing in January. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, so get your shit together has now been on sale for about four months. Um, and is doing really well. I'm incredibly pleased because I actually think that that was the book I was born to write. Yeah. Um, the life changing magic of not giving a fuck is a book about something that I realized very late in life. Get Your Shit Together is about how I have always been, Um, how I have always been, uh, you know, ambitious and successful and organized and how you can be, too. And um, so I really feel like that book is more. and, And when I say about me and about how I am, they're not memoirs or anything. It's not really about me, but it takes a lot more of what is innately uh, me and mm. puts it out there, um, you know, for the reader. And so I'm really, I'm very proud of it. Um, I'm very, very proud of the fact that I was able to follow up the first book with a book that's just as good, if not better, um, because that's a really hard thing to do. And mm. like I said, I've worked with hundreds of authors over the years and the second book is more terrifying than the first. So <laughs> yeah, well, it's actually, it's yeah. a really interesting point you've just made because I always find, uh, and especially on my blog, and it's obviously like the traction that that's getting is nowhere near the amount of traction that your uh, books have, uh, are getting, and not to be too competitive, but that's just a fact. Um, <laughs> but one thing I always find is when I write an article uh, and, and that one does take off or get a little bit of traction, I honestly, I understand what you mean. Like I find the next follow-up article really nerve-wracking to write because I think there's mm-hmm. so many new things going through my mind. Like, am I going to please the same people? Am I going to inspire the right. same people? Is this going to be as popular? Um, just as a 
from a creative point of view, how, like what mindset do you take into that writing process? Because I can imagine it would be really daunting to sit there and go, okay, the other one's going crazy in the amount of copies that it's selling. Like, how, how do I not flop? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, it's really, it's, it's very difficult. And, you know, I happen to be a person who is very good at compartmentalizing and that can be a bonus in the situation that we're talking about. It can be a, a, a definite con in other situations, <laughs> as I'm sure any psychologist would tell you. Um, but I really had to kind of separate the two parts of my mind, the one that was just really trying to write a great book and the other that was worried that it would be seen as, you know, a fluffy sequel that doesn't offer anything new or just taking advantage of the success of the first book or her first book was so great and the second one is a disappointment. You know, mm. there are definitely all of those things happening in one part of my brain. Um, again, because my career as an editor really afforded me that same um, mindset for 15 years, you know, I would tell my authors, I'm editing you with a fan on one shoulder and a critic on the other. Yeah. And you need to please the fans, but you need to anticipate what the critics are going to say and not give them any material. And it was really the same, the same thing that I applied to my own writing. Um, and there were days when it got a little bit overwhelming and I had to say, all right, I'm putting down the laptop and I'm picking up a bottle of wine and I'll get back to this tomorrow <laughs> because I'm, I don't want to psych myself out here, you know? Yeah. And have you got anything in the works right now or is that, a, is that top secret for the time being? I do have something in the works right now, and I'm not ready to talk about it, but <laughs> no it worries. is definitely in the works. We'll touch base in a little while. Hey, uh, yeah. hey Sarah, so uh, have you got about 15 more minutes? Is that okay with you? Yes. In fact, that's great because after that, my husband needs to start practicing with his band, and oh. <laughs> you're going to hear it because there's no place in our house where you can't hear that from. So. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Now, I was going to ask you just about the freelance kind of thing. So you mentioned that you, you went from your editing business that was um, obviously you, you had the paycheck that you could anticipate, that you could budget for, mm -hmm. that you could plan your life around. Uh, obviously, you said that you'd been doing a whole heap of saving before the big move. But what does freelance work look like for you? Now, so when you're not writing your own books, you mentioned you're writing some articles for, for magazines, but uh, where can people find you? Where can people read about what it is that you got to say uh, apart from your books? Oh, well, uh, they can find me. I'm, I'm really everywhere on social media. So they can find me at MC Snugs, which is M-C-S-N-U-G-Z on medium.com where I have a lot of articles up on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, they can go to sarahnightauthor.com where I have links to all of the stuff that I've written um, all over the world. And sarahnightbooks.com is my editing, my freelance editing service. Um, I am actually on a bit of a hiatus from taking on new editing clients because I've gotten so busy with my own books. Yes. But I can tell you that when I first started, you know, I, I put that savings together and I did a lot of things before I quit my job to prepare. So I put together, you know, I built the website, um, got all of the, you know, the images and the bio written and the, you know, the um, testimonials and all of that stuff ready to go so that it could be live, you know, literally the day after I walked out of my corporate job. Um, I also made, you know, a big database for myself of people that I wanted to reach out to because over the course of 15 years, you develop relationships with, literary agents, for example, who have, you know, your same taste and great clients and mm -hmm. you have a good relationship with them. So I said, I'm going to pick these 20 people and I'm going to email them and say, hi, I've hung out my own shingle. If you have any clients whose books need a polish before you submit them to, you know, a publisher, I'm your gal. 
Um, and really the, the work came very easily. I, I had been just foolishly worried about not getting enough work. And in fact, I got way too much work and I had to start, um, you know, handing off some of it to other people. And there are just, I was surprised to realize how many incredibly talented freelance editors are out there, you know, who used to work for corporations like I did and went out on their own for whatever reason. And there's obviously more work than all of us can handle. So, mm. you know, that should not be an impediment to anybody who is worried about doing what I did. Yeah, now that's amazing. So uh, in uh, so in the new home, in the Dominican Republic, between the, the sun baking, the martinis, the swimming, uh, like what does, a, what does an actual day in the life of Sarah Knight look like? I mean, that's pretty much it. Uh, <laughs> I, I have not set an alarm for the last year or so, um, unless I have like a guy coming to fix my roof. Um, so I get up when I want to get up, which was always a problem for me when I worked in an office job. I'm just not a morning person. Um, and then I drink my coffee and I catch up on my stories, which is what I call going through my social media feeds. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I usually, if I'm working, if I'm writing or editing or, you know, or doing, you know, work related emails, that's usually between like noon and four or noon and five, which is when my brain is at its peak uh, productivity. And um, that is often interrupted by a swim or a cocktail or both. <laughs> um, and then usually, you know, it's just hanging out with my new friends that I've met here in the DR. You know, my husband and I will often have dinner at home because he's a great cook, but then we'll go out to a bar after for nighttime cocktails with people. Um, we live a five minute walk from the beach. So there are lots of beach walks in my life, uh, which is a really good way. I mean, even just standing up from my laptop and like walking around my, my dining table is good for, um, you know, sort of shaking some idea that's been stuck in my head and getting it out. But taking an hour long walk on the beach is like perfect for that. Um, so yeah, that's basically it. I don't, I don't really do much more than that. <laughs> uh, it sounds amazing. And I'm, I'm excited for, for people to hear this message because I think, uh, in a world, uh, just uh, especially in the West, obviously we're obsessed with productivity and we're obsessed with, you know, uh, becoming successful in inverted commas, whatever that means. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think it's really challenging for people to hear the fact that, Hey, okay. So you've left the comfort of a job, um, from the outside, which looked amazing and, you know, a successful life. You've taken the big leap and now you're living a life that sounds far more dreamy and far more appealing. What advice would you give to people who are, who are stuck in the situation that you were stuck in a few years ago thinking, man, okay, I would love to make this change. The lifestyle that she's talking about is right up my alley. Maybe I could be a neighbor, not too close, of course. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what would you say to someone who, who who is scared about making the move, but, you know, feels as though they've got potential to, to do something like what you've done? Well, I talk about this in, um, in Get Your Shit Together because I really outline, you know, how these changes can get made, big life changes and small life changes alike. And I rely on what I call the power of negative thinking um, because I don't really ascribe to the normal self-help kind of modus operandi of like, oh, you know, this, it's the secret and you can actualize it and you can, if you dream about it, it will come to you and all of that. I'm like, no, <laughs> get up in the morning and really acknowledge how desperate, you know, depressed, angry, frustrated, or sad you are with your current life circumstances, whether you're, you know, too heavy or you don't have enough money or you hate your job or you don't think you want to be in the relationship that you're in anymore. You know, whatever it is, like confront 
how bad that makes you feel and then use that anger, frustration, sadness, desperation to motivate you to make a change. Because that's really what happened to me. You know, I really what I talk about in the first book is, you know, I focused on the annoy. My, my first book is a parody of Marie Kondo's The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. And she's always talking about finding joy and holding on to joy and what things bring you joy. And that's fine. But I am all about getting rid of the annoy. Um, so I would say, you know, if you're feeling, if you have these thoughts, um, really focus on like, get angry, you know, get mad and then do something about it. Um, that's what worked for me. So oh, that's amazing. Have you had any of the converts or have you had any of, uh, Maria Kondo's fans get in touch with you to let you know their opinion of, of the title and what you've had to say? Oh, I have. And most people are like, they either say, you know what? I loved both of these books. You yeah. know, they, they both, you know, work for me for what I need them for. And some people have said, oh, I'm, I much prefer your book. Honestly, I, you know, I read Marie Kondo's book and I took away some, definitely some permanent suggestions, uh, in terms of keeping my own space tidy. Um, and I thought that, you know, it was, her book was inspirational to me in the sense that she really lays out a plan for physical decluttering, but I did it for my mind. Mm -hmm. And I, and I thought, oh, this is mental decluttering and this is perhaps even more useful. Um, so it's a very affectionate parody of, of her book, but I think it kind of took on a life of its own and that's fine. But I do think that it's, we live in a world where people can like them both and find, you know, and find good, solid advice and inspiration from both of them. Mm, no, really well said. Are there any other books in particular, self-help or otherwise, or probably otherwise based on, on what you've said, you know, the last 15 <laughs> minutes, uh, are there any other books that you just absolutely love that you recommend or, uh, any that you just keep going back to? Well, I really, really love Jenny Lawson. Um, she's also known as The Bloggist. And she has three books out. The first one was called Let's Pretend This Never Happened. Um, and it was a memoir. And then the second one is called Furiously Happy. And the third one is out uh, just a couple of months ago called You Are Here. And I, I love all of her books. And I just think she's incredibly funny and also very transparent and candid about her life. But she writes about mental illness. And um, the second book, Furiously Happy, is is my favorite, and it really just continues to demolish stigma um, surrounding anybody who isn't 100% normal, whatever that you know, whatever that means. And so, I really would encourage anybody who's feeling, you know, either you know, either the symptoms of depression or anxiety or panic or you know, agoraphobia or OCD or any of these things. Um, and who's feeling alone or, or troubled or, um, or like they don't know how to have a happy life to seek out Jenny Lawson. She's really, I think she really has a remarkable handle on, um, you know, how to live life to the fullest, even though you, you are battling a lot of, um, you know, challenges, uh, that you, that are not always possible to control. So, mm, yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll make sure I, uh, I link those, I'll link those books in the show notes, but just before I let you go, just a couple more questions. Um, mm -hmm. uh, just today I was writing a little bit on my own blog about, uh, just th this idea that we are obsessed with productivity and we're inundated with options, uh, of where we can direct our attention. We're inundated with, you know, w whether it's, you know, the online world or the books we're reading or the podcasts we're listening to or what we're watching on Netflix or YouTube or whatever. And it seems to be an absolute abundance, like an infinite amount of uh, just resources that we can be distracted with continually throughout our day. Um, I, I'm really curious. So as a, as a writer, uh, you're obviously, you, you, I can imagine you're, you're a big reader. 
do you have any trouble deciding where it is to dedicate your attention between all of the distraction between which is obviously uh, significantly reduced i guess since you've made the move but but between all of the distractions that's available to us do you have any sort of uh, methods or any uh, i guess approaches to making sure your day isn't just spent being distracted so you can actually get down to your work well, it is difficult. Um, I, I certainly understand the feeling of just coming out of this fugue state where suddenly you realize you've been on Twitter for two hours instead <laughs> of doing whatever it is you were supposed to be doing. And I, I talk about a lot of uh, tips for handling that and get your shit together. For me, I turn stuff off. You know, like I just I don't trust myself not to be tempted or yeah. distracted. So I just if I'm really in in writing mode, I don't have Twitter and Facebook open on my computer. So I'm not getting notifications and I'm just not, you know, there's, there is no temptation. I just remove it from the equation. Mm. Um, in terms of wanting to remain, uh, both well-informed and also entertained, um, I read very widely online. And one of the things I like about medium is that it curates sort of a daily three for you. So it kind of learns what you like, and then it sends you similar articles. So in that way, I kind of know that when I'm drinking my coffee in the morning and I'm catching up on my stories, um, I will have, you know, probably at least one of those things will be really interesting to me, if not all of them. And so that's how I kind of like, you know, I relax and I, and I get my sort of world news, um, in that way. And also, you know, I have to admit I'm a, I'm a headline reader, and I think that it that it's terrible. Clickbait is a terrible thing. But especially with the United States, you know, political um, just disaster that's going on right now. Oh, I hadn't heard um, anything. I want to <laughs> I want to stay informed about that, but I can't allow myself just psychologically to get too bogged down in it because yeah. I it makes me so upset. So, you know, I follow The Washington Post. I follow The New York Times. I feel like I'm getting the kind of best, most you know, um, or sort of least ridiculous, mm -hmm. uh, you know, news from the sources. And I really try not to read all of the other stuff. I really try not to get, um, sucked into, you know, fringe, uh, <laughs> publications and mm -hmm. arguments and conspiracy theories and all of this stuff. So, um, it is difficult. And I, and, you know, my best advice is if you have a problem being distracted by social media, then turn it off oh, because, yeah. you know, that's just, that's that's cutting cutting it off at the knees. <laughs> yeah, no, great point. And uh, just before I let you go, massive quick left-hand turn, random question, but super curious. If you could meet just any one person in the world, have lunch with them, dinner, whatever, you choose what it is, I don't care, it's an hour. Uh, <laughs> who would you choose? Who would you spend an hour of your time with? Oh, I would definitely want to spend an hour with Hillary Clinton. Oh, that would be an interesting conversation. Yeah, and I would make her an Aperol Spritz, which is my drink of choice, <laughs> and uh, and we would just we would just let the wheels come off, let the tiger out of the cage. Oh my gosh, what feels. is it? What is it that makes you say Hillary Clinton? I just I, I I want to thank her. I want to engage in in mutual stupefaction with her. I want to know how she's pulled herself together yeah. um, since November. I'm just I'm I'm maddeningly curious about what she thinks and she is way too much of a um discreet career politician to to say that um in any other scenario other than an imaginary dinner with me so i would be <laughs> very interested i do love how well thought out that martini in that dinner was in, in such short notice 
<laughs> you thought about it. Sarah, I'm not going to hold you up. I'm going to let your husband come in so he can play his band. Um, hey, Great. so grateful. Thanks so much for stopping by. I'm glad we finally got a chance to organize this conversation. Yes, thank you so much for making the time twice. Um, and definitely send me the link when it's all edited and ready to go, and I will spread it around. Ah, oh, beautiful. Hey, thanks so much, Sarah. Thanks.